Welcome to the Successful Athletes Podcast, where we interview successful athletes to make you a faster cyclist. It's presented by Trainer Road, and I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and joined with me here today is Will Stinger, uh, based out of Idaho. Is that correct? Yes. Cool. Thanks for joining us, Will. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. You actually reached out to me and I really appreciate that. And anybody that wants to be on this podcast, if you use trainer road to accomplish anything, it doesn't have to be a big race win. It could be, it could be a national championship. It could be something there. You just feel like you have made significant improvement, significant to you. Uh, let me know, just, uh, go over to trainerroadcom slash podcast. And then there's a form that you can fill out there and you can go to the successful athlete athletes podcast, fill out the form and let me know. And it would be awesome. So then we can get some more great folks just like you that are listening to this on the podcast. So, uh, first things first, Will, why don't you give us a little bit of background? What do you do for work? What's your family situation like? And, and where exactly are you based out of, uh, in Idaho? Uh, I am in OBGYN. Uh, so deliver babies for a living, um, leaves fairly irregular schedule. Uh, I'm married with four kids ages 11, 10, eight, and five. And, uh, and most of my time until just a few weeks ago I was in Pocatello, Idaho and recently moved to Middleton, Idaho. Which is just outside of Boise, correct? Yes. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Uh, man, 11, 10, eight and five for the kids. Yeah. That 11, 10 and eight, that must've been really tough. Like just that tight spread is, uh, I want to first talk about that very thing training with kids. So we'll talk about your history and everything else, but just first things first, I'm sure a parents listening to this, that's probably struggling with training with kids. When do you fit in your training? Uh, the vast majority is early mornings before it's time to get them ready for school. So typically up riding five or five thirty. Got it. And that's, so I guess that's just depending on the workout, you'll get up a little bit earlier and do that sort of thing. How do you fuel your work sure. to make sure that the workouts are feasible and doable like that? Uh, well, you know, initially I wasn't, you know, I just get up, get on the trainer with a bottle of water and cause I, you know, mostly roll out of bed 10 minutes before it's time to start riding. And, uh, it was actually, you know, a little over a year ago, year and a half ago, caught one of the podcasts. I, I probably, I was using trainer road for almost a year before I discovered there was a podcast associated with it. And <laughs> that's, that's my bad as a marketer. <laughs> when, when I, I found the podcast, one of the first episodes I heard was Amber talking about fueling work. And that was a bit of an epiphany for me. And I started at least trying to get something in. And so some mornings I, I do the piece of toast, but mostly I've, I've always done well with liquid calories. I found out a while back racing, I did better with that. So I use infinite nutrition and one of their custom blends. I have a couple different blends I use depending on what I'm doing. And I just try to get up, mix a bottle of that and start, start drinking it as I got the trainer ready, things like that. And then just drink it as I, as I rode. Awesome. Yeah. That's the, a big point that I see a lot of people ask is, well, how do I get the food in before that workout? But the point is if you're taking in fuel as you're training, you're accomplishing the goal, right? Uh, you're getting it done. So that's the smart way to do it. Yeah, that was enough for me. Every, you know, every now and then, depending on the workout, I'd, I'd even get out of bed, do it like a Martin gel real quick, and and then start the the infinite something like that. Yeah, no doubt. So we're going to talk today about your improvement, but also specifically, we're going to talk about Loda Jaw. So, for those that don't know what Loda Jaw is, can you explain what that race is? Because that's really kind of kind of be like the crux of or the the guiding backbone of our conversation. So Loja is, I hope this is still true, but they, they market it as the longest one-day USAC-sanctioned race in America. Uh, it starts in Logan, Utah, and then goes through Utah into Idaho, back out of Idaho into Wyoming, and ends in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. How long is it? So it, it ends up about 202 miles. Uh, there were some course changes this year and little things that made it about 204 this year. So that's like 327 kilometers for, for people like 325 would be your 202. So that's, that's a ton. That's a huge distance. What's the course profile like with a race that long? Cause that sounds like, you know, Idaho, Wyoming, all that. And Utah, those are all really mountainous states. 
Yeah, the course profile is pretty interesting, and that plays a big role in how the race goes down as well. But uh, as you leave Logan, the first 30 miles are pretty flat, and you ride into Preston, Idaho, just through just kind of flat farm ground. And then you start a fairly long climb that the, the main portion of the climb takes about an hour, um, with the, the real work is about 30 minutes. And has a false summit in it that gets a few people here and there, and then you think you're to the uh, think you're to the end, and you still really have a, another mile to go, and then drop downhill into Montpelier, Idaho. From there, you hit another climb right away. After then, you have your first aid station in Montpelier. You have a climb called Geneva Summit that takes about seven to ten minutes depending on the pace of the group you're with um but hits fairly hard right there and uh drop back into wyoming and you kind of have a another flat spot for a while and right around 100 miles in you have what they call the kom section and that's a two and a half mile climb that takes 10 to 12 minutes uh, again kind of pay on the pace and so you have those three big climbs all in the first hundred miles. And then the next part is you're, you just kind of feel fairly flat for almost the next hundred miles, slowly fading downhill for a little bit and then slowly gaining a little elevation as you finish into Jackson with one small little climb with about 12 miles to go. So it's you you start out with the climbing in the first half-ish of the race and it's still substantial. I mean it, you you gain around 9000 feet of climbing uh, over or 9000 feet of elevation over the course of the race with three really marked climbs that you that you end up dealing with. So it, it's pretty tough because <clears throat> a lot of the time I would assume that it's easy to blow yourself up on those climbs then you just have that long dragging section coming in for 100 miles that if you've blown yourself up it would be terrible. Yeah, that's the, the the big key to this is that you, if you want to make the lead group, you have to make the selections over those three climbs, and which is tough then because then you still you've got a hundred miles to go. Yeah, no doubt. So let's rewind. And I'm thinking like all the way back in 2015 is when you first started cycling, correct? And you actually started with a mountain bike, but then quickly yeah. transferred to road riding. Yes, yeah, sort of. I, I had a mountain bike about a year before I bought my first road bike. So I got the, my first mountain bike in August of 2015. Um, I'd been in medical school and residency for eight years and hadn't done a lot of physical activity. Been, I was a fairly active person, but I had no dedicated training of any kind. And I had wanted to get in better shape for ski season was the biggest thing. I thought, well, I've I kind of gave up the last eight years. I need to get fit again. I tried running a little bit. I found out I hated that just as much as I always had and <laughs> uh, hurt my knees and ankles. So I, I got first mountain bike and started searching for trackers and I found Strava and uh, for the first rode a couple times without realizing, you know, hadn't hit any actual segments. And then the first time that I came down this, kind of fun downhill segment, but right by my house. And I was like number 110 of 120 or something like that. And I came home to my wife. I was like, wait, look at this. It like shows you like how you rank compared to everybody else. And there were, there were names on there. I knew. And I said to her, I said, this is going to end in tears, but I'm moving to the top of that list. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, that started a, a bit of a sickness right there. And, um, went from the mountain bike racing and then in early 2016 i decided i want to start start racing so i so i did a couple races and then was finding days it was either raining or cold or some reason i couldn't get on the mountain bikes so i thought well, i'm gonna get a road bike just to train and at that point my only motivation was just to train for the mountain biking and it turned out i actually really enjoyed riding the road bike and so did my first road race and then uh, about eight months after buying the road the road bike. So I think that was April of 2017 was my first ever road race. And you got dead last in that race, right? I got dead last. <laughs> what sort I, of race I, was it? 
Uh, it was a, uh, it had two 16 mile loops, uh, pretty close to my house, had a fairly flat, but it had a couple little climbs that are pretty sharp, just hit hard for about two minutes. And, you know, we were two miles into this race and my heart rate was at 160, which for me is pretty close to threshold. And I thought, yeah, we're, I can't believe how hard we're going already. This is totally different than mountain biking. And I held on for the first lap, just barely. And at the start of the second lap, we hit a climb. Everybody surged, and I just fell right off the back. And there were a couple other, couple other guys back there with me that fell off, and and they eventually just rode away from me. And I rode in about five minutes behind the the lead group. So I think total distance was about thirty four miles. So it wasn't a long race. We we're on the bike about an hour and a half, and. Uh, that was a really eye-opening that there was a completely different level of fitness that I thought, well, I'm just, I'm riding as a cat five rider. I'm in the bottom and I, I'm the bottom of the bottom here. <laughs> Looking back at that race, what did you do wrong that you would tell yourself now? Um, I think a couple of things that I did learn uh, again, one of the things listening to Amber, uh, cognitive load i was i was pretty nervous just just trying to hang on trying to figure out where i was supposed to be trying not to crash wheel things like that that was a, a i was putting a ton of effort into that i think um and then i just I, I just didn't have the fitness i mean they i i thought of myself as a climber i'm fairly light and had always climbed well on a mountain bike that's where i'd made up my time and yet this little two minute climb everybody jumped on it and just rode away from me. Mm -hmm. Do you think it had to do a lot with uh, the unfamiliarity of pack riding as well? I, I see that with a lot of folks that are good climbers, but like naturally just speaking, but when they get into the environment where they have to ride efficiently leading up to the climb and they don't have those skills yet, it makes those climbs extra decisive, so to speak. Yeah, that was, uh, that's what I felt like is that I had used up every bit of energy just trying to hang on the back of the group. So then when they surged there, there was nothing left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. So at that point you, you did that race. That's in April, 2017. And then that same year you decided to ride Lotojaw. And to be clear, Lotojaw has like a, uh, they call it the cyclo sportive, uh, category or which is effectively like a, a less competitive one, more non-competitive, more riding for completion. Is that correct? Yes, they, they kind of have the, the license race category that then is broken down by category, age groups, things like that. And then they have the cycle sportive, which is essentially just kind of male and female and some loose age groups. And that one, um, you know, most guys are just, and girls just trying to finish, just trying to figure out, can you ride your bike for 200 miles? Yeah. What the heck made you think that you wanted to take that on? That is so ambitious. Like I, I had a similar experience of taking on something that I way too big. Like I bit off way more than I could chew in my first year of cycling, but I definitely didn't do a 200 mile race. That must've taken a lot of courage. Like, were you scared or nervous about it? And what made you do it? I, I was nervous not necessarily scared. I think that just, um, part of personality, things like that when in when I first bought my, my road bike, um, I, you know, in August, 2016, somebody said, Oh, are you going to ride low to judge? I said, well, what's that? Like, well, it's a 200 mile race. And I said, Oh, well, when is it? We all sure. It sounds cool. Uh, you know, so it was just, I mean, immediately I was like, yeah, I'd like to do that. And they're like, Oh, wait, wait, wait. You have to register like way in advance. It's there's only a one week registration period. You missed it clear back in April. And I was like, Oh, well I'm going to do it next year. And so started researching it, reading about it, searching internet things. And when uh, the, the registration opened, well, I found out that, you know, a lot of people don't get in. And so they were saying one of the guaranteed ways of getting in is to register for what's called the Huntsman Hometown Heroes. And you raise $1,000 for cancer research. And that guarantees you getting in. And so... I wanted to make sure I got in because I knew I, I didn't want to put in any, the work for this and not get in. So I registered for that back in, I think it was January or February, which allows you to kind of get in early before the, the real registration comes in. 
And so then I, I raised that thousand dollars for cancer research to guarantee that I got my spot in Lodija. Nice. So uh, let's talk about how did your day go? And we'll probably not get into too many details here, but yeah. how did your day go? And then what did you learn from the experience overall from doing your first 200 mile ride in the first year that you started riding? Overall, it went pretty well. Um, I definitely learned that it was really hard to sit on your bike for that long. (laughs) Most of my issues came from finding out that after a little over a hundred miles, I had this terrible pain in my foot. My shoes didn't fit quite right. And, you know, then finding out that saddle was just driving me crazy after being on the bike that long. Um, but everything else otherwise went pretty well. My wife acted as a support crew for me. She did a good job. I didn't spend any time really in aid stations that I didn't need to other than at one of the very last ones, I finally took my shoe off and walked around for a little bit (laughs) just to try to stretch out my right foot because it was hurting so bad that it was distracting me from pedaling. Yeah, no doubt. I, I've, uh, d- how did you end up fixing that? Was it just new shoes? Was it insoles? What was the specific just, thing? Just new shoes, new, new, different shoes. I, I had gotten those shoes for super cheap when I first started road riding local shop, had them in, um, found out they were meant to be for a wide foot and I definitely don't have a wide foot and just fit issues there. I can see somebody listening to this that probably has foot issues and are wondering what you went for. So what shoes did you end up getting? Um, I got Giro Empires, I think. I think that's what they are. They're the, yeah, the, the, the lace-up Giros. And those I, are no. I like, oh, sorry, go ahead. I like the laces a little better because I, you could kind of customize all the pressure points across the top of the foot a little better and seem to be able to dial in the fit better. And, and that fixed my problem. Awesome. Those are known for having a more narrow last as well. So they're good for narrower feet. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's a, a solid pick. So thereafter, after load a jaw, you found trainer road in February of 2018. And that that's yeah. when February and March, that's when you really started getting st- like starting with training. So tell us about that whole process. What made you go from completing the cyclo sportif side of things and then going, I want to follow a structured training plan. It was mostly finding out that a lot of these guys that I was racing against in these road races, I'm looking at their Strava profiles, stocking them and finding out they've been riding all winter. And, uh, you know, in Pocatello, Idaho, we're at 5,000 feet. Uh, there, you know, the first road race I did was in April. And at that point I'd only even been able to ride for about four weeks outside and I didn't want to go through that again. And so finally got the trainer in February of 2018. So I could start a little earlier on getting some of those miles in and being able to have fitness for earlier races. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that process, you started following, I think that you the first time you threw, you followed sweet spot basement volume. You followed sustained power build and century plan, um, which is the ideal setup I would say for, for low to jaw, uh, because it's such a long day, the century plan really works on those sustained sort of efforts. But what was it like to go from just riding to training? What sort of, what things did you bump up against that were difficult? Um, overall, I, I had a great experience with it. So um, as far as difficulties go, it was just finding the time every day, making sure. And, and that wasn't super hard for me. I, I like being on a fairly strict regimen. So I was just getting out of bed same time every morning, getting on the trainer. Um, here and there, I'd get called into work earlier than I thought I would need to. And so I'd, I'd have to leave a, leave a ride halfway through, things like that. So I, I didn't always get to finish my plan every now and then that was probably the biggest thing I ran into was just work issues. How did you schedule around that? Cause for some of us that can, that can like drive us nuts. Right. And it's, and it's funny how a small derailment can actually 
cause a much larger effect down the road. And we, we end up really falling off the wagon. And usually it's just because of us getting disappointed. Was that a temptation at all for you to become discouraged with it all? Or how did you manage that? And I don't think I ever hit the point. I felt discouraged on anything. I would just run into periods where, um, it would seem like I'd have a few bad days in a row at work. And so I would probably, if anything, just start getting a little grumpy that I hadn't been able to ride for a few days. And I always did my plans. Um, so I rode Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off, and then rode Friday, Saturday. Kind of how I always scheduled the mid-volume stuff. And, and I typically even always added in a filler workout on Thursdays, just depending on how things went. But my most common day for being on call was Thursday. And that would start at 7 a.m. So I could get a ride in before 7 a.m. But then that meant that until 7 a.m. Friday, I was kind of on the hook. Mm-hmm. And so some nights, if I got totally blown up at work all night and I'd spend the whole night uh, in the hospital, then I wouldn't get up and do that Friday ride. Um, and and sometimes that would that lack of sleep Thursday into Friday would still make Saturday's rides feel tougher than than I felt like they should have compared to when I would get good sleep. I can imagine. How did you, how did you adjust the workouts in those cases? Was it, if you felt too tired, did you skip the workout or did you just turn down the intensity or manage it some other way? It really depends, but I did both at various times, either one. I just tried to be flexible with making sure that I I wasn't overcooking myself. Uh, And when I first started, I probably um, I probably was not flexible enough and I'd be, Oh, I got to do this. I'm going to do it. And I'd, I'd force myself through the workout on then Friday morning and Saturday and find that then still on Monday, I was struggling with the workouts. And as I learned more, uh, listened to the podcast, then starting in 2019 and some of the things I learned from that, I, I started to prioritize that recovery just as much as the riding and, and wasn't then as afraid to miss those workouts here and there on Friday morning or to dial back that intensity and just change the type of workout that day and just do some endurance work rather than trying to hit VO2 max, something like that. Mm. Yeah. that That's like a, a... The hardest part, I think, for a lot of us type A athletes is viewing modifications as a way forward rather than a step back. But it's it's something that we all have to do. And we kind of learn ourselves and learn our bodies and learn what we need as time goes on. What was your starting point in terms of power to weight uh, when you first started with Trainer Road? With Trainer Road, um, I don't know exactly where my weight was at that point, but it was probably just a little bit heavier. Um, my, my first ever test was 192 Watts. And so that would have been somewhere around 2.8 to three Watts per kilogram, um, depending on what my weight was at that point. And I'm not sure where I was at that point. Yeah. And how tall are you to give people a point of reference? Uh, five ten or about 178 centimeters. Awesome. Perfect. Thanks for doing the conversion for me. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And so that's, so you are, you have a slight frame as an athlete, then I would assume, uh, being able to at that height, still maintain this lower weight that you have. I do. Yeah. I've always been pretty thin, but I, I actually dropped around 20 pounds when I very first started riding. Um, I, probably I'd come out of ski season around 160 pounds. And the the first year that I started riding a bunch, I dropped right down to about 140 to 145, just depending. I bounced around in there. Wow. Yeah. And that's just the increased activity. How did you manage the nutrition side of things? Because also I assume with your work, it would probably be tough to to, it's not like you have a very established lunch break, I assume, and very established dinner, and it's always consistent. So what do you do for your nutrition to fuel your training and also just an everyday life? Uh, overall, 
eat fairly healthy. I try not to be super restrictive because then I feel like it does lead to cravings. But um, I just tried to make sure I was getting plenty. I'd find I'd get in cycles of underfueling or not eating enough at breakfast, lunch, or dinner. So then I'm wanting to snack later. And but then I'm not not as hungry, so I don't eat as much of the good food when it's there and get into that cycle. So I tried to make sure that I was really doing a lot better about really getting a good breakfast and a good lunch, good dinner. And so then any snacks in between were healthy. Um, I read the endurance diet with Matt Fitzgerald uh, and overall really he, it's easy to like a book when you agree with it, but I, <laughs> Uh, overall, I, I didn't find anything in there that I didn't think was already good advice. Yeah. And so that means that you probably eat a carb centric diet that uh, to fuel work that has a lot of variety in it, right? I assume a uh, ton of variety um, w within reason. My breakfast is kind of the same every day. I do a bowl of dry rolled oats with honey and almonds and, and milk over the top of it that Sometimes I add fruit, depending on what we have around, or chopped dates, things like that. So, I, so my breakfast doesn't always have a lot of variety. It's almost always the same, but a bunch of carbs right there. Um, lunches, a lot of times, whole wheat sandwiches, um, whole wheat with chicken breast, things like that, and then lots of beets and carrots. And then uh, dinners. Um, a lot of chicken and rice, chicken and sweet potatoes with peas or broccoli, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, it's the sort of stuff that helps for sure. Is there any, uh, did you learn anything nutrition wise at all that helped your training progress better? Maybe helped you improve more? Was there any like key thing that you latched onto? Uh, biggest things were really just increasing that percentage of carbs um, you know, I shifted how the portion size on my plate of how much chicken and how much rice that that pile of chicken got smaller, the pile of rice got bigger, uh, same thing, you know, two sweet potatoes and a little piece of chicken instead of big piece of chicken and one sweet potato that, that was a major thing for me was just a lot more carbs. Mm. And at this point, so you've trained through 2018 and at that point, you're following a structured training plan with the goal of doing low to jaw again, but you had a pretty, you had a pretty severe crash just the week before. I did, uh, 2018, September 1st, uh, what was going to be my last training ride before low to jaw other than just kind of tapering in, you know, a few easy rides, um, riding in the dark, that's what you do when you get up at 5 a.m. to do a lot of workouts and uh, hit a cattle guard, got a center gap on a cattle guard oh. and uh, brought to an almost immediate stop. My, my face hit the carbon wheel and it uh, broke out a bunch of teeth, cut my lips and tongue up pretty bad and uh, spent that first night in the ICU. Wow. That's terrible. Um, <laughs> holy cow. That's like my worst fear realized right there with a the cattle guard is I'm, I'm always so afraid of going over those. It, what, so this was just a lack of, I, I assume that because it was dark and everything else, you just didn't see that the gap in the cattle guard there. Yeah. I, you know, it's cattle guard I'd ridden over, I don't know, a hundred times probably before. And due to just a couple life things that morning and, uh, the Pocatello Marathon was going on that morning, and I, I changed my route a little bit because I ran into them, and I didn't want to be uh, scaring riders by coming from behind or scaring runners by coming from behind them. So I, I went the opposite way around the loop in that morning. Just a couple little things added up that, even though I've been over this cattle guard a bunch of times, um, I managed to just hit that center gap. I had lights on but it just wasn't quite enough to realize what I was doing that early in the morning. Oh man. So how long was that recovery? You mentioned that, you know, facial damage and, and dental and everything else. Those are pretty long recoveries, right? The biggest thing was I lost a lot of blood. And so I didn't, 
I was able to, about a week afterward, or even the, the day after I got out of the hospital, I sat on the trainer and pedaled for the, what was basically one mile of riding. And, and that was just exhausting. But I kind of, I just had to kind of prove to myself that other than my face, there really wasn't any damage. I had a little bit of road rash here and there, but I really got lucky that uh, legs, arms, everything else were all totally okay. But I'd lost a lot of blood. And so soon as I'd start even spinning the pedals, my heart rate was at max. Wow. And it took um, it took a few months before I that really started getting back to normal. It takes a long time to build new red blood cells. And that uh, I definitely felt the effects of that. I helped coach our local NICA team and um, I'd gone to a couple of the races and tried just riding the course in pre-rides with the kids and would find I, I couldn't even you know, do, do much riding at all without heart rate being way up there. Was that frustrating at all for you? Or I don't know if because you're in the medical field, you kind of anticipated a longer tail or a longer recovery for this, but many athletes would be really frustrated with that, with the, the, the delayed recovery, perhaps the, because the rest of your body's fine. Right. But yeah, that I actually, I had a hard time with it for a while because one, I was just pretty down about you know, essentially I put all my work for the year into this one race and then I crashed a week before. Mm. And so I was pretty down on that. And that, uh, so that part was hard because I, it was going to be my first year racing it. You know, I had done the cycle sport of the year before, but I was entered in a, a cat four five masters group, a 35 plus age group cat four five. And so I really, I wanted to see how it was different racing it. And so just with that not happening, I was a little down, um, but I was motivated to get back on the bike. It, and it may have been a blessing in disguise that I, I found myself extra motivated, but I, I had to take it pretty easy. I eased back into it. I feel like I was pretty smart with how I went about it. And I waited until I could tell for sure that heart rate seemed to be normal for the amount of power that I was putting out and just gradually worked back into it. And somewhere around um, middle of November, I, I started noticing that I was, things were going better. Um, I did a cyclocross race somewhere in there and definitely wasn't back to normal but was close enough that I felt like I could start training again. And so around December 1st, um, I really started trying to build some base again. And then I went back onto a training plan on January 1st. So about five months later. Wow. Uh, so that's some good perspective that to, for other people that are maybe dealing with something like this, it, it takes time, but it takes the time it needs. And patience is really the best way forward with it. So when you started training in 2019, you mentioned that you used plan builder to build out your plan that year, right? Um, for low to jaw. Uh, I, th I think that was still pre plan builder. Oh, that's right. That yeah, of course. Yeah. Yep. January, 2019. Um, I just, I went to the kind of same thing again. I did the sweet spot base, uh, mm -hmm. mid volume, and then the, sustained power build and century plan. And, um, after the crash, then that really, that completely changed my, my indoor training mm -hmm. that before I was, I was still riding outdoor a lot without a lot of structure and was just using trainer road in between here and there and had been, um, you know, if it was raining, I'd get on the trainer and do trainer road stuff, or it was cold or different things. And I tried to get in a couple workouts a week, but then 2019, that crash um, made it a lot harder for me to convince myself to go ride in the dark like I had been in the years before. And so I was pretty then, I was dedicated to getting on the bike every morning on the trainer 
and it made my wife a lot happier. Um, she was pretty shaken up by me having a crash in the dark. And so she was a lot happier if I was on the trainer. And so then I was really dedicated to just sticking with that structure and spent a lot of weeks just, you know, getting all those, those five rides every week on the trainer. When I look at your career, that marking year of 2019, like your, your training stress is really consistent and it's consistent and you see a whole lot more indoor training from that too. And that's a lot of the time <clears throat> we have this tendency to try to find like the, the a huge week is exactly what we need to be able to propel ourselves ahead or a different type of training that's totally different from what we're doing. But consistency is key. That's the biggest determinant of improvement for that we see with people when they're more consistent, they improve more. And it seems really logical when you say it that way, but it's something that many times we overlook the importance of just like you said, hitting those five workouts every single week and just layering that for months. Uh, so with that buildup that you have for 2019 going into Loda jaw, what was your, what was your plan going into Loda jaw? You had completed it once you had the really bad crash. So you missed out on another opportunity, but what was your plan this time? Uh, so this time I really, I entered that same cat four or five masters group again. Um, and I just, that by that point, then I'd also discovered the podcast. So I spent all of 2019, I had finally learning racing tactics for the first time, which was completely foreign to me. Um, I there was a podcast where I remember it was you saying how different it was to be able to race a race and just try to be hanging on for dear life versus race and being the one to dictate and how much more fun it was. And I can remember in, you know, as I'm hearing this January, February, 2019 thinking, Oh man, how would that be? Like every road race I've done, I've just been hanging on for dear life. But then I went into till early 2019. I had a couple of shorter road races where I actually felt like I was able to respond to everything. I was just out there having fun and it was <laughs> completely different. I had a completely different experience with road racing in 2019 than I had previously. And so I really, I gave a ton of credit to being able to train through the winter, being able to be consistent and just following those workouts. And I had a little panic attack about six weeks before Lodija of whether or not trainer road was the right thing. I was like, Oh my, did I, did I do the right thing? I haven't done a bunch of big rides. It's, I was seeing friends post centuries every week that I knew we're also going to be racing Lodija where I, I, for the most part was all two hours or less just following the, the training plan. Mm. And I'd had a couple of longer rides, you know, four or five hours, just so I knew I could sit on my bike that long, just so I knew my shoes weren't hurting my feet. But that was definitely not a staple of my training that my, my training was all just, hitting the, the workouts in trainer road. And so I, I had a little bit of a panic for a while, but I thought, well, I just got to believe in this. And I went to 2019's Lodija, ended up with a great start group, a great bunch of guys. Um, I was racing solo. Uh, I've always, I've never had a team there in Pocatello. Mm. Had a great race, uh, comfortably rode through all three of those major selection points, which are, you know, the three big climbs and was in the lead group. There were, there were 10 of us in that lead group that went over the top of that last climb together. So then I knew now, now all I have to do is just hang on, just be able to do, do my share of work in the pack now. And here's the 10 guys that are going to go on and, and hopefully sprint it out for a, uh, a win hundred miles later. Yeah. And then, so leading up into that, we're getting to the point where we're through the climbs. What happened? <laughs> uh, about 25 miles later, I got a flat tire. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, flatted out of the lead group. And uh, luckily the wheel car was close. I had checked some wheels. I got a spare wheel, but I, I was never able to chase back to that lead group. And I, I spent the next 75 miles just convinced that somebody from my group was going to catch me from behind 
And, I, and at some points I kept praying they would. Uh, <laughs> so I had somebody else that, that I could ride with because you're, you're, you know, you're not supposed to ride and work together with people that aren't in your start group. You have to stay kind of with your category. And so it was a pretty lonely finish into the line. And I, I came across the line just devastated and, you know, said to my wife, I thought, wow, I, you know, I think I could have got a top 10 if I uh, hadn't flatted. And she kind of looked at me, she said, well, you were 10th. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, so I, I hadn't done the math on how many were in that lead group. In my head, there were more than that. And so she's like, yeah, there were nine of them came across the line and then nobody else has come. And you, you came in, so you were 10th. So I, I, that seemed to be a small consolation prize to me to be able to say to myself that I was 10th. That's pretty awesome. Way to go. So <clears throat> a year of structured, diligent training, consistency, making sure that you, you know, you were gaining all of these insights from the podcast as well about efficient riding in a group and how to work within a race and race tactics and can get top 10. That's awesome. Uh, so let's keep, let's go another year. Cause that's what you did, uh, going yeah. into the following year, what was your plan then? And, and how did you, what did you do differently, uh, this last year? Uh, so this last year, one, I, I had an entry to Leadville. So I had kind of thought loaded show was going to be on the back burner. Um, I had, I was kind of putting all my eggs in the Leadville basket. Um, but again, so now I used plan builder. I built out a plan that had the Tahoe trail 100 as a B race and then Leadville as my A race and loaded Joe's another B race. And loaded Joe was supposed to be four weeks after Leadville. And so I thought it'd be just enough time to maybe be able to recover for a couple of weeks, uh, get back on my bike, do, do a little riding for a couple of weeks and then cruise into Lodija. And then, you know, the pandemic happened and <laughs> uh, races were canceled. And so a Tahoe trail didn't happen. Lodija didn't happen or I mean, uh, Leadville didn't happen. And so I, as each of those were canceled, then I, I altered plan builder and shifted everything to loaded to be in that a race for me. Mm. Was that hard at all to, to shift those gears? I mean, interestingly, it's really similar in terms of training demands that you would have for Leadville and something like loaded jaw, just because they're such long days and they actually kind of end up being really similar and or close to similar in time too. Uh, but was that difficult at all to change that from a motivation perspective? Yeah, the, time-wise, I thought they were going to line up identical. I knew, you know, nutrition strategy would be almost identical. Um, I was hoping to go around eight and a half hours at Leadville. Uh, so I, I knew eight and a half to nine hours. So I knew that time on the bike was going to be almost identical to a Lodija effort. And so all of that lined up good. But there were, each time one of those races got canceled, it was a little harder to there, – there was this little – question on motivation but i was able to just get back on the bike and i thought well okay i guess i've still got loaded you and i was just hoping it didn't get canceled <laughs> and um so i just I shifted i used plan builder and it it gave me extra build time actually then mm -hmm. uh, if i remember right yeah the specialty still ended up the same but by taking out those other races it, it recalculated and gave me a little bit of extra build time uh, leading up to that specialty phase. And so it actually, I gained a, a few weeks of training. Yeah. What was, and, and I, you know, you, you reached the fittest you've been at this point too, uh, this year, I believe, uh, just looking at your career too. Yeah. Um, what was your, what's been your high mark for the FTP this year and, and weight with that as well? Um, so high mark, I hit a ramp test at 256. <laughs> Um, nice. after one of that final build phase, which at that point put me at 4.1 Watts per kilo. Awesome. Cracked the four barrier. That's a, that's a tough one to crack. Yes. Did you do anything differently this year, uh, with your training in particular in, in regards to actual execution, maybe nutrition timing or, or anything else? I think the biggest things was I, even more than ever, those things we talked about of focusing on the recovery um, and then making sure that I was getting those carbs. Um, I, 
more more clean carbs than ever before and just really fueled the work um i sort of uh, admittedly i sort of game the system on those ramp tests that you know almost every other morning i, I just get up get right on the bike and it, for my ramp tests i would almost always get up i'd eat breakfast i'd do the ramp test two hours later mm. and, and more like how i wanted to see where that best case scenario was. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I would do, do the breakfast two to three hours before, make sure I was well hydrated, do the ramp test. And it did make the workout sound a little harder because I was coming in, you know, a little, little faster, under hydrated, but by getting on the bike and starting to use the infinite nutrition and drinking that down as I rode, I still was able to get through the workouts in general at that higher FTP. Awesome. Yeah. And sometimes, and for everybody, they kind of react differently to, to testing protocols and everything else like that. Um, within reason, uh, we designed the ramp test to have the highest bandwidth we have ever been able to see from a testing perspective, right? In the sense that it includes, it's the largest midsection there. It really is the best solution for most. Um, and in that case, though, it's really a, a good observation that you had to anticipate that the workouts would be harder. But if they're still manageable, that means that you're getting more out of your training, right? And and if you're focusing on the recovery, it's another key point. When I look at your career for this past season, I see equal consistency, consist, consistency to previous years. But one marked thing that I see is much more training stress coming from indoor workouts themselves, um, rather than coming from the mix of outdoor and indoor as well. So, and that's one thing that I've noticed is I always, I try to be strict with myself on training versus riding. And I call something I'd never try to call riding training, right? Like when I'm just riding outside, but really just the stress part, making sure that I'm really hitting my marks with my workout. So you did an incredible job with that way to go. Yeah, that was definitely a change there. Um, I mean, even with last year, when I felt like I put a ton of trainer time in this 2020 season was, um, partially different because there wasn't, you know, (laughs) weekly group rides were a little different. They weren't there. I, we'd had a weekly hill climb series in Pocatello. Uh, It wasn't weekly. Uh, Every couple weeks there'd be a hill climb. And so I, sometimes I, I'd find myself tapering then a week, the the night before just so I was ready. And so that my Tuesday ride wasn't always quite as hard as, it should have been so that I was ready for the hill climb on Wednesday mm. and little things like that, that I, I probably was cheating myself before, but then those things just didn't happen this year. So I was just right hitting those marks every time on the trainer. I think it's been the unanticipated favorable consequence of all of this that we've gone through this year is at least we've gotten more consistent training, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go into Loto Jaw this year. Uh, you've, your races have been canceled. This is your big one. You've prepared for it. Uh, how did the race go? Uh, it went really well overall. <laughs> so I, there were a couple of, one of the biggest changes I do have to at least bring up here is I actually raced with a team for mm. the first time. Um, there's a team that had consistently been beating me up in road races for the last couple of years, uh, as I had raced in the, uh, the Utah cycling association series and it was zone five racing. And I had gotten to know them. I'd gotten some really good guidance from, uh, one of the guys there on loadages stuff over the past couple of years. And so I, I wanted to build a race with those guys. Mm. And so the year, as we kind of started out early 2020, um, I was able to join that team, go to their team camp, do a few things. And so then as they were deciding who was racing what categories, uh, I requested a Cat 4 upgrade so that I could race the Cat 3-4 group this year. Because a couple of those guys I wanted to be able to race with were were Cat 3s. And we had a, a group of guys that sort of six of us then that ended up deciding to race that cat three, four group. And so I knew it was gonna be a little harder than the four or five group that I'd raced before. Mm-hmm. And it was an open, 
where I had raced the master's group before a 35 plus group, this was just an open three, four. Mm-hmm. So we've got all ages. Uh, I knew it would go a little harder. And so I, I almost thought for sure I was giving up any podium chances by joining this, this category, mm-hmm. but I, I really wanted to race with these guys. So that, that was kind of some of the build up to it. Um, changed categories, got a team. And then there were some adjustments to Lodija this year because of COVID. They changed some of the aid station strategies. Uh, so we kind of did it with one less aid station than usual. Um, in the past, they had done bottle hand-ups in a couple places and they weren't allowing those. So we had to start with three bottles instead of two. Um, and then at one of the other aid stations, I had to take on three bottles instead of two. So we had to jam bottles into Jersey pockets and we weren't allowed to throw bottles because of COVID. Mm. So you had to, there were just a few, a few things that shifted this year that were different. And then they altered all the start times to spread everything out. So we had a 5, 10 a.m. start time this year, which mm. meant that we were going to be riding in the dark for about an hour and a half. Wow. Which had me a little nervous about riding in the dark for that long in a group of, we were going to have about 60 people in our start group. Mm. Yeah, that would be nerve wracking. I've, I've never ridden with a group that big at night, <laughs> only small groups. What, what, how did the race, how was the race different with teammates? Uh, because that's a, it's, it's interesting in the sense that you have those early climbs in the first hundred miles. And then you have the, the latter portion, really a team would really come into, to effect. So with six riders, did you pick the six riders because they would be good on the climbs or what was your strategy there? These were six guys who I think, um, if I'm remembering right, I'm the one who has ridden the least amount of loadages, um, of any of them. Um, two of them, I know this was their 10th loadage. Um, and so. So being just my third, I, I was definitely on the inexperienced side. Um, so we had a kind of a team captain there. Um, he'd been keeping us all organized for months before, um, planning strategy in the leading weeks leading up to it. And um, they were all guys I knew could climb. Uh, fully expected all of them to be there um, over the top of the that third climb and ready to go. And on paper, you know, we had probably the strongest team in that start group. Um, and I felt like I was the weak link looking at the, at our group, Mm. but, um, we did end up losing one of them on the climbs. Um, and, but we still had five of us over the lead climb, but it really made it. So because we had so much strength, we didn't have to respond to everything. Mm-hmm. And we, we knew, um, you know, there was a guy who kind of really tried pushing the pace on the very last climb. And we knew we could just let him go because no one else went with him. And we had all five, all, all five of our remaining teammates were right there together, still kind of controlling things. Mm-hmm. The, the, our, our climb times were still really fast. <laughs> that's so when, after you get over those climbs, were you in a position since you had a stronger team of just kind of like policing things almost just making sure nothing escaped or did you have an aggressive tactic where we, you were hoping to put in a decisive move? Uh, we were mostly policing at this point. We, there were, there were still a lot of strong riders left with us. Um, and we, one of the guys, you know, that was his 10th loadage, he really, he took control um, two different times, three different times. I think there were the same guy tried to kind of solo break and he immediately would organize the chase and, and without blowing anybody up, um, got the chase organized, brought everybody back together, uh, did just what it took to make sure that we, we kept things organized and in control and it was easy to understand those tactics because of things I had learned kind of through the podcast before of 
how those race tactics work and knowing, like, oh yeah, we can let him go. We're fine because we've, we've got the, the team right here. Yeah. And knowing we didn't have to respond to everything. Coming in close to the finish last year, the previous year, you got a flat <laughs> this year. Yeah. Keep me posted on the events coming into the finish because there were still events where they're yeah. not. <laughs> still, yeah, still events. So <laughs> with, um, I don't know the exact mileages, but somewhere around 15 miles to go, there is one last climb, and it, it's not long, couple minutes. And the, the same guy had kind of done a couple solo breaks earlier. He went again, and one of my teammates this time responded, and. And so I went with him. So the three of us kind of broke away and we opened a gap on that final climb. And as we, we then kind of hit a descent flat spot, we realized that we weren't going to be able to stay away for 15 miles. So we call it, we cut it off pretty easy. Mm. And then you hit kind of a spot. Lotus has been on a main highway for 180 miles at this point. And you kind of come off and you're just in this little side road for a while and it's shady for the first time in a hundred miles. And so everything just eased up. I think everybody knows that what's about to come at this point, there, there's not really any spots where you can make a break and have it stick. All the deciding points are out. So now we're all just kind of riding along in the shade and we had the three, four group, and then they started the cat fours with us. So we had a few cat four riders with us. And so now everybody's counting jerseys, trying to figure out <laughs> who, who, who they've got to beat to end up on the podium. And I'm, I'm doing the math kind of looking like, I think there's nine of us in the three fours and there were five or six of the fours. And I, I was kind of back of the pack. And all of a sudden I heard a bunch of people's wheels start coming together and we were mm -hmm. just, casually cruising and I heard wheels coming together, clattering oh, no. and the guy right in front of me kind of bails out to the left and chopped my wheel and, oh, and just dumped me. Oh, so, no. so I watched the whole group just sort of ride away as I'm kind of bouncing along the pavement here and hurried just, I bounced almost back to my feet, jumped up, grabbed my bike, realized the chain was off, got the chain back on and started chasing. And it was a little nervous. I thought they're gone. And luckily, you know, I kind of just dropped my elbows down onto the bars and TT'd and it actually ended up, I was looking at the data. It looks like it was only about two and a half minutes to catch wow. on. <laughs> so, so I caught back onto the group and now it's just kind of gassed and, sat on the back of the group for a little while. And so then you hit a bike path where it's super narrow and you ride on this bike path for a while. And then you make a final turn with six miles to go. And then it's just a straight shot, almost dead flat for the final six miles. Wow. And that's where it usually ends up opening up in a sprint. You mentioned something, friend of the podcast and actually personal friend of mine, Cameron Hoffman. He's won Loto Jaw plenty of times. Very good. Uh, he's a, he's a, a once pro racer, uh, road racer, and still is absolutely in every sense of professional in terms of how he races. He's so darn good. Uh, yeah. that he, he, this year actually won the race in the sprint. Um, yeah. and so it always usually comes down to that you've been training for these long distance events, right? Uh, but you've been doing it all with structured training, everything else. How'd the sprint finish shake down? And you actually mentioned that you actually hit some good power numbers too, at the end of that 200 mile race, which is crazy. Yeah. So Cameron had said, I, on, there's an online quote somewhere. I can't remember where I found it, but in the, a couple of years ago, that Lodage is a sprinter's race mm. and it's, all the, those big selection points happen early on, but then you got a hundred miles of where it's, it kind of favors the big guys who can just put power down. Um, the climbers, you know, have to be able to get over the top of those three climbs, but then uh, in the end, those big guys are able to sprint for the win. And he had, he had said that I'd read it and I kind of had always pigeonholed myself. Oh, I'm not a sprinter. I can't sprint. And 
um, listening to the podcast. And again, you know, I know I've said that a few times, but that's where you guys have said over and over, don't, you know, pigeonhole yourself. You guys are all amateurs. You know, you don't know you're not a sprinter, those things. And so I spent this summer trying to work on sprinting. And I, after every long ride I did, the re, if I'd go outside and I'd do a four or five hour ride, I tried to always sprint at the end of that mm. and just see what I could muster up after at the end of that long ride. Uh, and then I did a couple of specific just sprint workouts. I'd go out, I'd do that sprint, recover for 20 minutes, do a sprint, recover for 20 minutes. Uh, the week before Lodija, I went out and did a ride where, uh, you know, I sprinted in between telephone poles here and there and just really paid attention to gearing. Uh, I remember listening to Justin Williams when he was interviewed, talking about how he doesn't shift gears in the sprint. And that was sort of eye-opening to me. I think I've always ended up trying to go for another gear or whatever. And so I realized I needed to be in the right gear and just really wind it up and work on that pedal speed rather than trying to shift gears to keep the power coming. And so that was something I worked out. So I went out and tried to make sure I was at about the same starting speed of what I thought would happen in the final sprint and get that gearing right and know where, where that gear was. And so I just tried to do all those little things and coming into it. Then um, I, I just really, then there were a lot of games, you know, everybody's looking, everybody's waiting. Somebody would kind of go hard and, the field did respond and over that, that last six miles, um, there are points where we're going slow and then we're going fast and we're going slow with everybody just looking at each other. And I, I got on the wheel of the guy who I thought I was going to win, who I thought was probably the biggest threat to win. And I just thought, I'm not coming off of this wheel. I'm going <laughs> to stay right there. We're bumping elbows and did whatever I could to just try to surf wheels the best I could. And just what I thought was probably a little too early. Then a couple of the cat four guys went and I thought I saw them go and it broke the field up right there and everybody started. And so at this point I still kind of went seated and I have a hard time with the distance, but I guess we were still five to 700 yards out at this point. Oh, wow. And so I just stayed, stayed seated trying to make sure I was still on a wheel. And then um, as a gap finally opened, and I couldn't quite hold the wheel in front of me. Um, I stood and sprinted and uh, finished fifth. Wow. So, way to go. I was super happy about that. That's impressive. Uh, <clears throat> that's a, a tough field, a tough day. And then to also to be able to sprint at the end of that. Do you know what you hit in terms of wattage at the end of that? Uh, I hit 938 watts. After such a long day, that's impressive. So, yeah, I, you know, my peak normally, I, I've gotten over 1,100 here and there. I think all time records like 1,200. And so, I, my goal is kind of if I could still manage a thousand watts after the end of nine and a half hours on the bike, that I, I thought that was going to be pretty good. And so, I got I, at 938, I, I felt pretty good about that. And this makes me want to race Loda Jaw, put together a team here at Trainer Road. That would be a ton of fun. I I definitely think you should. I you know with Nate always talking about everything from Dirty Kansas and Cape Epic and the he he likes those epic things. Leadville. I've always wondered how come he'd never done Led or Lodija. Yeah, we could put together a good team too. We have some pretty big engines that, like you said, the sort of riders that can climb, but what they're really good at is putting in you know big power over long periods of time. So. That'd yeah. be a good, that'd be a fun thing to do. Maybe we'll do that next year. That could be fun. Maybe yeah, uh, next year might be tough. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Love to see you there. That would be a blast. Uh, well, this is, this has been awesome. I, it's been really fun to kind of go through your evolution with this event kind of being the, the thing that ties it all together. Is there anything that you would say is kind of a final parting note to anybody listening to this? That's either going to be racing low to jaw or just wants to take up structured training or prepping for any event. What would be the, the, the main helpful advice you would provide them? Uh, definitely fuel the workouts. We've heard that repeated a bunch of times and then biggest thing for me was that consistency when I just really started, you know, foregoing group rides, friends had 
give me the the stink eye over that here and there. The, you know, or they they say, oh, why don't you come ride? I say, oh, I've, I've got this specific workout I've got to do. And <laughs> um, when I when I stuck to all that, it seemed to pay off. Awesome. Well, way to go. Uh, Will, this has been great. If folks want to get in touch with you, can they do so through the Trainer Road Forum? Or what's the best way to, if they have any questions? Uh, I am on Trainer Road and on the forum. Um, I'm not super active there. Um, Strava, just Will Stinger is probably the best way to find me. Uh, you can stalk me there and, cool. and it's uh, easy to find there. Grab the man's wheel if you're going to ride Loda Jaw. <laughs> so <laughs> you'll have some wheel suckers next year holding on to you after listening to this. So uh, way to go, Will. This has been super impressive. If you, like I mentioned, want to be on the podcast, then head over to trainerroad.com slash podcast, and hopefully we can have a great interview like this. And also, if you want to get fast like Will, it's been clear what he said, uh, follow structure. So head over to trainerroad.com to do that. And thanks everybody for listening to this, share it with your friends, help them get faster. And we'll talk to you all next week. Take care. Thank you.